are listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and we're here at the Grand Hotel for the 2021 Mackinac Policy Conference. We just heard from Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and now I'd like to welcome the second in command in the administration in Lansing, a person we have gotten to know well here on Detroit Today over the years, and just for the record, a former neighbor of mine when we were children, uh, Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. Welcome back to Detroit Today. It's always good to be here with you, Stephen, and with the Detroit Today listeners in WDT overall. Yes, and it is exciting, of course, to be up here uh, on Mackinac after a year and a half, uh, which was the last time we were here. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about an issue that is both especially important to Detroiters like uh, you and me, but is also especially top of mind here at the Grand Hotel. Two years ago, Governor Whitmer stood out on the porch just feet from where we're sitting right now and signed that auto no-fault bill reform into law. Now, critics of the law are saying it hasn't worked, that costs haven't gone down enough to make auto insurance affordable and that people are losing out on really critical care because the law has driven down reimbursement rates. So how do you answer those critics? Do we have to go back at that issue again? So uh, I think that it's important to recognize that there's still work to be done. And certainly there have been folks who we, our administration has been in communication with um, about the impacts of the law. We've seen that the costs have gone down and we want to see them continue to go down uh, more and more quickly. So that, that work still needs to happen. And we also have seen uh, deep concern expressed uh, from folks who were receiving long-term care due to, due to catastrophic injury. And we I stand shoulder to shoulder with them and agree with them that there's more work to be done to amend this law. And unfortunately, the legislature uh, has shown little interest and that fix needs to come from the legislature. And so, you know, I think that while there's been a temporary thing in place, um, I don't think that that's adequate. And we were very clear that we didn't think that, that was adequate. And the and the advocates have been clear they didn't think that it was adequate. Yeah. And so we hope that the legislative leaders, the speaker, the majority leader will come back to the table um, to work with us and more importantly, work with advocates and patients. Um, who are who are getting this care to um, find find a way to be able to make this work, whether it's grandfathering or other sorts of um, tactics and tools um, to be able to move forward so people have the care they need in Michigan. So I want to go back to the the cost of insurance first. What what needs to happen to make rates go down more than they have? They certainly have not gone down as much as we anticipated they would. You know, I think that there's we we expected the pace to uh, maybe be a little quicker. And, you know, but like anything in terms of with, with policymaking, once you see what's happening in the real world, um, then you evaluate options. So we're going to look at that. I don't want to handicap what any of those options may be because part of that is dependent upon legislative negotiation. Um, but we're ready to we're ready to make sure that people can afford um, the basic needs that you that you need here in the state of Michigan. And one of those is if you're a driver to have car insurance and the car insurance that you can afford that doesn't break the bank. And I experienced this personally, Stephen, when I came home seven years ago. Um, from living in Washington, D.C., from parking on the street, from having my car broken into on the street and crashed into on the street. My car insurance, when I came home and parked in a garage, quadrupled. I've wow. seen what happens um, when that happens to families. And so um, we certainly want to improve that. You know, we took a step in 2019 out here on the porch, and there, there are more steps to be taken, and we're ready to do that. Yeah. Uh, and on the critical care side, these reimbursement rates are part of the law and the, the, the drop in reimbursement rates, uh, a lot of people said up front, this would cause a lot of people not to, to, be, to not be able to get the care that they, they need. So do we need to go back and adjust the law 
uh, to deal with the rates, or is there another fix? I think that's part of what needs to be on the table um, is understanding what that fee schedule looks like. And so uh, we're, we are open to a conversation about um, what we can do to address the advocates and patients' concerns. That is who we're here for. We want people to afford their car insurance and have the care they need, period. And so we're, we're ready at the table to, to do what needs to happen to make that happen. Yeah. Okay, so another issue that Detroit and its surrounding communities have been dealing with this summer an awful lot uh, is the catastrophic flooding and other infrastructure failures that have caused unbelievable damage this summer. I don't think anyone I know has ever lived through a summer like this in uh, Detroit. So the administration has talked a lot about fixing roads and bridges and that kind of infrastructure, but what needs to be done at the state level to help us not fear the next rainstorm in in Detroit. So I want to expand a little bit on what you said. So we've talked about infrastructure quite broadly while the kind of the, the, the slogan part of it has been about roads. We've talked about everything from uh, water infrastructure, which is something that's critical here, to expanding access to the Internet in addition to roads and bridges and railways, et cetera. So I would say that we think about infrastructure in really broad terms. Um, and what we're seeing is at some point when you combine the fact that our infrastructure have been underinvested in you know, since longer than I've been alive, I'm not, you know, so when that's happened, one. And then two, um, the fact that climate change is leading us to have more intense weather events. We got two months worth of rain in six hours on June 24th of this year. And so coupling those two things together is what, what lead to, what's led to these catastrophes. When I went the day after that storm and saw and I was in people's basements in Dearborn and on the east side of Detroit and in at the Garden City Hospital and seeing what those um, those, those water events did. So at the state level, we have been very clear about pro- needing to prioritize infrastructure investments, needing to um, have a dedicated way to fund infrastructure investments. Um, again, across water, things like our My Clean Water Plan, which deals with, with not only service line replacement, but water infrastructure, pumping infrastructure, et cetera. But we also saw failures of our electrical grid that, that contributed to some of those pump failures in Detroit, for example. So we need to invest more deeply in that electrical grid, which will deal with that kind of infrastructure as well as enable the electrification of our economy and our mobility sector more broadly. So these things are really deeply connected. And we've put forward proposals to invest you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars on that. So I don't think um, um, our position is unclear here. Mm-hmm. Now, what we need to do is we need to be met at the table with Republicans who are willing to make that investment as well so that we also can leverage the, I think, generational federal resources that will be made available to us um, to be able to make progress on it, too. I am proud of the work that the, the professionals at Michigan Department of Transportation have been doing thus far. For anybody who was on 75 on their way up to the bridge, you saw a lot of barrels. Mm-hmm. That means the work is happening. And now we need to continue to do a broader to do broader infrastructure work um, to be able to deal with these, these catastrophic events. But climate change is real. And I think environmental justice is real. And that's what we're seeing the intersection of here. So, so I also want to talk about this from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, the utilities, uh, the electric utilities are regulated by the state. Of course, uh, the, the, the water system is publicly owned. Does the state have a way to leverage uh, the, the, the changes that we need long term out of the utilities uh, to upgrade the infrastructure themselves or to change uh, the electrical grid, for instance, which you know is really outdated in southeast Michigan? Uh, how, how can you be an instrument to 
kind of put pressure on them to, to do more? I think there's a few ways. So, so first of all, we do have the Michigan Public Services Commission, which is the regulatory body that oversees many elements of our, um, our, our utilities. And so there are certainly tools that at that body that uh, that are being explored and being utilized. And you saw some of that come into effect in terms of the response um, to the extended power outages, ensuring that people were made whole or made more whole um, from the companies. And that's something that would not have happened um, without leadership being shown at the state level on this issue. And so we, we expect more things uh, like that to come down the pipe. But ultimately, this is about articulating a vision for what needs to happen as far as the, the type of electrical grid that we need to evolve toward. And so, you know, I was at the uh, Michigan Environment Environment Innovation Business Center um, dinner in Detroit just last week talking about how, the way that we can innovate um, that kind of grid infrastructure um, so that it can, be, it can better support folks. And yes, our incumbent utility providers are going to need to step up to the plate. And they're going to need to play a role in upgrading that infrastructure so that it can be resilient and they can be accountable for it. And I also think there's going to be room for innovation. You know, there are many um, emerging, you know, startup uh, businesses that have solutions to energy provision, to, to, to energy distribution. Um, to energy storage that we're going to need to consider in our mix of services and, and offerings to consumers, to businesses, to communities. And the state of Michigan needs to create an environment that um, allows those flowers to bloom. And so that's the role that we're going to play. And I think that's going to be an important piece for our energy future and, frankly, a growth opportunity um, for people with ideas and entrepreneurs and, and, a, and, a, and a, um, a vector for job creation in Detroit and beyond. I'm talking with Lieutenant Governor Garland Gilchrist. Uh, here in the dining room of the Grand Hotel uh, on Mackinac Island for the 2021 Mackinac Policy Conference. Uh, Lieutenant Governor, I want to talk about an issue that doesn't have a particularly prominent place on this year's agenda. And I can't actually remember the last time uh, that was true. And that's regional transit. It seems like every time we're up here, we're talking about uh, some big plan or hatching some big plan to improve transit in Southeast Michigan. Um, We are not likely to get another big transit millage proposal on the ballot in the next couple of years, Uh, but are there things the state can and should be doing to create better transit in Metro Detroit? So this is something that, as you know, and your listeners may remember, is very personal to me Mm -hmm. um, as a person who uh, has been a uh, full transit rider in Detroit with my family, um, who, when I worked in 2018 in Ann Arbor at University of Michigan, I uh, took a bus uh, from Detroit to Ann Arbor to work, and there is not a public bus you could take. I took a very unreliable <laughs> Greyhound bus that was hours late both ways every single day. So so I, I've seen the seams of our lack of regional transit infrastructure. So as a state, first of all, uh, we know that it's critical to our economic success and our economic potential that we better connect our people and our communities. And I think public transportation infrastructure that's safe, that's reliable, that's affordable, that actually goes the places that people need it to go to connect people to jobs and economic opportunity is important. And so you'll see um, dollars that we have set aside to invest to not only um, upgrade and electrify buses, but also to make um, affordability more of a priority for our local transit systems, to be able to expand routes and route capacity is something that we've continued to invest it in uh, every single year. We want to and we want to do that more. And we think there will be more resources coming down from the federal government that we can leverage to, to strengthen that. I mean, I stood in 2019 
um, you know, over at uh, Metro Airport with uh, federal federal highway administration. And we had a bus from Detroit and a bus from Flint talking about how we're upgrading those those systems using federal resources. So we're going to continue to make those kinds of investments and, and set that priority and vision. But I want to see more. And I, and I think that our local and municipal leaders, um, I think that certainly those that are interested in economic development and growing our economic future um, need to come to the table for us to figure this out. And it's a solvable problem. And I think we can do it. Yeah. So I, I know you're going to have to go soon, but before you do, I, I really want to ask you about the new bipartisan task force on juvenile justice reform. You are uh, one of the chairs of, uh, of that uh, task force. Uh, tell us what has been accomplished since June. It's not too long, but uh, I'm sure you have some things uh, to report. And what are the areas we really need to focus on when we talk about this kind of reform? Yeah, so let me, let me set a little backdrop. So you know, our administration saw, uh, you know, some real success from our task force on jail and pretrial incarceration that I was proud to co-chair with the chief justice of our Supreme Court, uh, Justice Bridget McCormack. And what we saw is taking a data-driven approach to understand our jail system, which, to be clear, there was no comprehensive data on statewide. Um, working in partnership with Pew Charitable Trusts, we're able to dig in and make some really uh, forward-leaning, nation-leading reforms to our system that are going to have a deep impact. For example, we found that one of the main reasons people were in, were in jail because they um, you know, couldn't pay a fine related to getting their driver's license suspended. Well, we, we now pass legislation that starting on October 1st will go into effect where people will not be able to get their licenses taken for many things that have nothing to do with how they drive, which is a key thing that keeps people from economic opportunity and driving to work to be able to earn the money and pay the fine. We also um, changed many protocols and that gave actually law enforcement professionals more options to um, not arrest people and take them to jail and issue citations and things like that. So that data-driven approach led to policy differences. And so this juvenile task force is learning from that model. We're working with the Council of State Governments. We have our first meeting um, in the final week of September here for the task force. And I'm very excited to be working with folks, again, from across the political and ideological spectrum, multi-branches of government. We have directly impacted individuals who are on the task force. We have advocates. Um, and we need to look at many aspects of the system because the juvenile system has obviously been a feeder to our adult criminal justice system. So we need to make sure that children are supported, that we have arms wrapped around families, that we have resources for people to get the services they need at the point of intervention, at the point that it's needed, not too late down the road, that our juvenile system is not used to warehouse children, but instead to position them for success. And so it, the, the principles that, that have predicated um, the work that we've done on criminal justice reform to treat um, to reduce contact with the system in the first place, to treat people with dignity and humanity when they're in contact with the system, and to position them for success going forward. Those are the same principles that we're going to apply to our juvenile task force, and we know that it'll make a real difference. Yeah. Okay, Lieutenant Governor Garland, Gilchrist, always great to see you. Of course, great to see you here up on Mackinac. Are you happy to be back up here? You know, this, it's good. <laughs> I, I, I want to commend um, the, the Detroit Regional Chamber's staff and leadership. Um, for making the choice to, to put in place the protocols to enable us to have this experience. I want to thank the team here at the Grand Hotel. I got the, the, the best thing that I've done on the island is I got a chance to spend time with the kitchen staff here at the Grand Hotel to thank them for their service. And, and th that's really what makes this go around. Um, and these folks, um, frankly, do not get the gratitude that they deserve. Yeah. And so to be able to spend time with them, to hear their stories and, and to, 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 to say thank you to them for, for, for being safe and taking care of us, um, that's really what this is all about. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, I'll see you all week up here. For sure. Thanks, Stephen.